Thank you for listening to this gospel resource from Cornerstone Baptist Church in Wiley, Texas. Feel free to use or share this resource, but we ask that you not alter the content in any way. For more information about Cornerstone Baptist Church, please visit us at cornerstonewiley.org. Good morning, everyone. It's good to see you in our little prosy group again. So for the record, this is October 29th, and this is Lesson 9 in the Book of Ecclesiastes. By the way, if you want the uh, notes digitally, I'll, you can get your name on this list. If you're not on this list, I'll email them to you Saturday night or early Sunday morning, depending on when I get uh, get through with them. Just this going that way. So we are continuing our study in Ecclesiastes chapter 7. So you can turn, turn there and let's, let's pray. Our Heavenly Father, now we thank you for bringing us together today by your kind and good providence. We thank you for your word that you have preserved for us and provided for us today. And yet we know that uh, we need more than what we have in our human abilities to grasp it and understand it and so that it may bear fruit in our lives. So we ask you to minister to us by your Spirit. Open the eyes of our understanding. We may grow in understanding of who you are and your ways. And most of all, that we would uh, grow in our understanding of your grace and your salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ. I thank you for each person that's come. Thank you that you know each of us and you know what our needs are today and so we pray you would minister to us according to your uh, to your wisdom your love and care for us so now we love you and we thank you for gathering us together in jesus name amen well last week we just kind of got started in uh, chapter seven and i'm i'm hoping to cover chapter seven today I don't, we'll see we'll see about that but uh, we kind of got through verses one and two, I think, of last last week. So we won't we won't go over that in detail. Um, I think I will just read it to kind of get us started. I'm going to read verses one through six. A good name is better than precious ointment, and the day of death than the day of birth. It is better to go to the house of mourning than to go to the house of feasting. For this is the end of all mankind, and the living will lay it to heart. Sorrow is better than laughter, for by sadness of face the heart is made glad. The heart of the wise is in the house of mourning, but the heart of fools is in the house of mirth. It is better for a man to hear the rebuke of the wise than to hear the song of fools, for as the crackling of thorns under a pot, so is the laughter of fools. Now this also is vanity. So, um, the topic is still wisdom. I mean, and death particularly um, seems to be the theme of these first seven or eight verses. And as you know, is a is kind of a sub theme of the whole whole book. Um, interestingly, though, I think that we we've seen that Solomon says he's been pursuing understanding of life with wisdom um, as a vehicle for him to understand life. But now he's saying. Uh, be careful because even wisdom has its limitations. 
So he's gonna, we're going to see some of that uh, today. But we talked about uh, the day of death is better than the day of life because death is a better teacher. Somebody said a, a coffin is a better teacher than a bassinet. So y'all remember all that, I'm sure. We can go on to the next, uh, next point. And of course, that's because death brings reality into, into focus for us. And so when we, go to a, when we go to a funeral, we think about our own funeral. And it helps us to look back. And that's why our friend uh, David Gibson, Living Life Backward, start with your death and work back because of the clarity that death uh, brings to us. And then we had this, well, the, 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 uh, the thought continues in verse 2, it's better to go to the house of mourning than to the house of feasting because that is where we, that's where we're all going to end up there and also we can, uh, we can grow in that. Now verse uh, 3 is a, continues the, continues the, uh, the thought. Verse 3, sorrow is better than laughter. I could ask you why is that so, but you could just read the text and it would tell you. The answer is right there in the, in the text. Continuing this, this idea about death is better than birth, uh, better to, to uh, mourn than to be in the house of feasting, and now sorrow is better than laughter. For by sadness of face, the heart is made glad. Well, what do you do with that? Um, it's interesting that, I think I gave you a note there. Just look back to Proverbs 14. Proverbs 14 and verse 12, uh, maybe a verse that many of us memorized, Proverbs 14, 12. There is a way that seems right to a man, but its end is the way of death. So we're in Proverbs 14, 12. And then, so maybe an illustration of that could be verse 13. Even in laughter, the heart may ache. So just give that some thought. We know that's true, don't we? We, we can smile on the outside and our heart can be, can be breaking. And the end of joy may be grief. So a joyful experience can turn into a grieving experience. But Solomon, uh, and we think he wrote this, but in Ecclesiastes, he turns that on its head. So Proverbs 14, 13, B, and the end of joy may be grief. Now he says the end of grief may be joy. So the same guy writing the same, uh, same thing. So back to Ecclesiastes. So sorrow is better than laughter, and by sadness of face the heart may be glad. So there's, there's his turning the Proverbs 14, 13 on its head. He says something could, uh, that we could be sad on the outside, but have a glad heart on the inside. So, what do you think about that? John, you seem to agree with that. Tell, tell us. Well, I assume we're talking about believers because okay. we have hope in okay. Christ. And we always have that hope no matter what the circumstances are. 
Okay. So we always have the hope of the gospel and the and salvation. Whatever is happening on the outside. Okay, that's good. Good. I, I got. I think it's the Net Bible. It says this: sorrow is better than laughter because sober reflection is good for the heart. And and that's where he's going with all this. I think I read a uh, quote from David Gibson. The preacher offers, offers us two opinions in this life, the life that eludes our control and frustrates our expectations, escapism or wisdom. We can seek to run from the reality or we can embrace it and, uh, and live in it. And of course, he's going to recommend that we, that we live as, as realists. So this, the Net Bible sorrow is better than laughter because sober reflection is good, uh, good for the heart. There's an interesting, uh, my study helped me think about this for a few minutes. Um, verse 3, sorrow is better than laughter. Does anybody's version have another way of saying the second part of that verse? One says, uh, I have <clears throat> New King James, and says, For by the sad countenance, the heart is made better. Okay. By the sad countenance, the heart is made better. That gets a little bit closer. It, it's an interesting word that can mean sorrow, but the Hebrew guys I looked at said that it really has the idea of anger or indignation or you know, vexation, anger or, or indignation. And um, I thought, well, that seems unusual that having a, a look of indignation um, on the face could make, it could also include having a glad heart. And then I thought about uh, the Lord Jesus at the death of uh, Lazarus. Look at that real quick. That's in uh, John 11. And I'm not real sure where I'm going with this, but I just want you to see it because I think it's really interesting. Because this is that famous passage, you know, the shortest verse in the Bible, Jesus wept. But there's more to the story than Jesus weeping, although that's a very important part of the story. So in John 11, um, he's greeting, I think he's greeting Mary here. Mary comes to see him as he's moving toward uh, where, La where Lazarus is. And so John 11, verse 33 when Jesus saw her weeping and the Jews who had come with her also weeping, he was deeply moved in his spirit and greatly troubled. He was deeply, so here he is um, in, the, in, the, uh, in the presence of this, of his dear friend Mary and the others and they're weeping. So when he saw their weeping, notice his response. So he's in, he's in the house of mourning, right? That's where he is. He's where he's supposed to be. He sees them weeping, and he was deeply moved in his spirit and greatly troubled. Do you see? The ESV has a, a note there for deep for uh, deeply moved. He was indignant, and it's a very strong word. In fact, I think it's not only indignant; it's hyper indignant. He's very he's upset. So what's he up? That didn't seem like a very good response to a dear friend that's weeping. What's he upset about? Their sorrow. 
Okay. Concerned for their their weeping. He's entering into their to their mourning. Good. Uh, I sort of don't know what all it means there, um, but you, but you you take that his weeping and I mean his indignant his indignation and then his weeping. And so that's helpful to us to know that we can be indignant about something and still be sorrowful about it. And I think that maybe what's going on here is that his friend has died and his great enemy of physical death has won another battle and he's not happy about that. He's going to deal with that in a few, well, a couple of years, I guess. But uh, he's indignant about that. But we look down at verse uh, 38. Says it again. Then Jesus deeply moved again, came to the tomb, and he's going to he's going to deal with Lazarus. Of course, he's going to deal with all of all of God's people one day with the with, with death. But I guess uh, just the, the thing I see, and we got to move on, is that um, does it bother you sometimes when you go to a funeral and it's called a it's called a celebration of life? And the preacher gets up and says, now let's not be unhappy about this. You know, we know Brother John is you know, with the Lord. One time I was walking through the office where I served, and, and um, there was a, a lady there, and, and I said, well, how, are you, how was your weekend? She said, not very good. I went to my best friend's funeral, and they, uh, they said it was a celebration of life, and we're not supposed to cry or be upset. And she said, I was very sad because my best friend was gone. And I wanted to weep and to mourn. And I said, well, absolutely. You're the one that had the right spirit about that. And probably others in the, in the congregation, too, wanted to weep and mourn because of the loss of your friend. Um, and we should grieve and mourn for that. So I don't know what to do with that, except that Jesus gives us the right, the right model. That we there's times even with mourning and, and loss we should be indignant and upset about that, um, but still as John said we can have the joy in our in our heart. Well, let's go back to Leviticus. Maybe somebody wants to bail me out of this dead end I've taken. This I think. And what is the what is what does Isaiah say in Isaiah 53? The Messiah will be a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. Understand the Hebrew there says the essence of his projection of himself will be sorrow. Now he was joyful at times too, but there's something there I think that dealing with reality, there should be an awareness of death and sorrow about us. Not all the time, but um, maybe more than our culture says that it, that it should be. We can, we can talk about Halloween and all the goofy stuff about death with Halloween. This shows our culture is really messed up. Okay, anybody want to have a comment about that? Okay, Tree. I, I guess I just keep thinking death is the result of sin, right? And that isn't a, a joyful thing. That's the reality, like you said, the reality of sin. The result is death. Yeah, death is the result of sin. And that surely is part of the essence of Jesus' indignation about this, too. Okay, well, we're going to walk through these other verses a little bit more more quickly. Uh, an interesting verse, verse 4. So now, now he's described the things that are that are better. 
day of death, going to the house in the morning, um, having sorrow and indignation. And now he shows how this is a, is a reflection of the heart. He's finally getting to, there's two kinds of hearts here. There's the heart of the wise and the heart of the foolish. There's the heart of the, of the escapist. There's the heart of the, of the realist. And notice what he said. And, and, and so we're back to two houses too. The heart of the wise is, the, is in the house of mourning. And the heart of fools is in the house of mirth. So notice what he says there. The heart of wise people lives in a house called mourning. The foolish person lives in the house called mirth. And there's nothing wrong with mirth, but you get the idea this is frivolous laughter and, and a kind of an escapism attitude toward life. Uh, listen to uh, David uh, Gibson. He says, laughter and pleasure, well, there's nothing wrong with them in themselves, of course, but amusement like that disappears as quickly as kindling sticks when you start a fire. Uh, but the preacher, but, but says the preacher, uh, let me tell you this. I put my life in order when I went to the funeral home. When I went, death said to me, come in and stay a while, have a seat and stop and think. And I listened to what he said to me. It is very important to be clear, the person who lives like this is not morbid. On the contrary, what characterizes a person who lives like this is depth. They have depth of soul, depth of character, but superficiality is the mark of the escapist who is living in denial. If you live in denial of death, what is there to do but to eat, drink, and laugh, and, and have a party? Instead of being superficial, death invites you to be a person of death. Of death, death. Only someone who knows how to weep will really know what it means to laugh. That's the message of Ecclesiastes. It is an invitation to be a person who realizes that living a good life means preparing to die a good death. So maybe that's enough uh, commentary on that, that verse, but I just encourage us to, uh, when death comes our way through a friend or a family, that we embrace that and we let death teach us what we need to know that we may be that person of depth and then have a heart to be able to minister to others. Well, um, I think I'm just going to read a few verses here. Let's see. Verse 7. Well, verse 6 is kind of a interesting. You know, the cracking the thorns under a pot, apparently... You Boy Scout folks know this, but apparently thorns are a good thing that for kindling to start a start a fire. Is that right, Steve and Mike? I didn't know that. Well, I think it is. So, but, yeah, okay. And they go, but they go, they go away real quick. And uh, and the point here is that, and the the sound of it may be a little bit irritating to hear the crackling of the of the thorns under the pot, and just saying that. That's this frivolous laughter of, uh, laughter of fools. Um, so verse 7. Let's see. Oh, no, verse 5. I, I skipped verse 5. It's better to hear uh, the rebuke of the wise than to hear the song of fools. And then verse 6 kind of describes uh, the song of a, of a fool. But verse 5 just says again 
that it's better to, to experience the pain of somebody rebuking us um, than to hear a funny joke from the foolish person that you know, doesn't care about us. And, um, so let's keep on, keep on going. Verse uh, 7, Surely oppression drives the wise into madness, and a bride corrupts the heart. So his point there is, even, even wisdom will not protect us from the, from the dangers of being oppressed or mistreated by others. And, um, and even a wise heart can be corrupted uh, by, by a bride. Now verse 8 is interesting. Better is the end of a thing than its beginning. So he, he's, he's following this, this pattern like it's, it's, it's good to hear the rebuke of a, of, a, uh, of a person that loves you knowing that that doesn't feel too good when it starts out but it's going to end up right. It's going to be a, a way to grow. And, uh, but this, uh, he apparently thinks this applies to other things. Better is the end of a thing than its beginning. So, what do you think? Can you think of an illustration about that? A jail sentence. <laughs> okay, good. Yeah. So, really? Beginnings are often either a little impulsive or either infatuated with something, and if you continue on and it has some depths, then the ending ultimately is better than the beginning because anybody can start something. Maybe the beginning of it is it's uncertain. You're not sure how it's going to end. Okay. But the end, you know, you're, you're, you know, regardless of what it is, you, you know what it is. Yeah. And let you know. Let God's providence right. play itself right. out. But time is. I just said Job. Yeah. Well, that that whole book's an illustration of this, isn't it? The more I read Ecclesiastes, I haven't studied Job yet, but boy, they just are very good friends. To, to deal with these same uh, these same issues, well, um, Solomon gives us some advice on how we go through there. Better is the end of a thing than its beginning, and the patient in spirit is better than the proud in spirit. So he's talking about going going through a situation that looks that starts out difficult and, and bad. Isn't it, isn't it interesting how, for me, oftentimes I just assume the worst. And I worry and I fret, and then it turns out, boy, just a whole lot better than I thought it was going to be. And then I thought, boy, look at all the anxiety and, and distress I wasted. I didn't even get to use it on something that was worth wasting it on. Or, so, so that's kind of his point, or one of his points. Because sometimes the beginning of an issue implies the worst, but in God's providence it may not be that way. But we don't know, and that's part of his where God is orchestrating the, the events of our lives and we can't see them. But um, into verse 8, and the patient in spirit is better than the proud in spirit. <clears throat> so how is impatience like pride when you're living through a circumstance? How is impatience like pride? You're impatient because you know what's best and you don't want to wait. You want it now because you already heard it out. Okay. If you're impatient, you're proud because you know what's, what ought to happen and you've already got it planned the way it's supposed to 
way it's supposed to happen. That's good. And the other part of that pride scenario is that you don't want to suffer long. It, it's really independent of the benefit. It's more focused on yourself not wanting to suffer any longer. Okay. So we don't want to trust God's providence to work out for our, for our best. Yeah. Well, so what happens um, when we're proud and impatient? What can be the next um, emotional outburst? I'm giving you the answer. Yeah, if you you can read, Solomon will give it to you too in the next verse. Be not quick in your spirit to become angry, for anger lodges in the heart of fools. So he's he's really bearing down on us to learn to live under the providence of God even when it doesn't look like it's working out the way it's supposed to. Don't be impatient. Uh, don't be proud. And don't be angry. Okay. Uh, 11 and 12. Oh, 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 verse, verse 10 is really a good one, isn't it? <laughs> Say not, why were the former days better than these? For it is not from wisdom that you ask this. So he's saying it's not wise to to ask about the what old days, the the good old days. Well, we all do, don't you like to sit and reminisce about the good old days? I remember one time I was thinking about my childhood home in Fort Worth. So I'm over, I'm over there every now and then. I just remember such beautiful memories about that house. And I drove by there a few months ago, and it's just an old house. <laughs> I didn't relive, I mean, I kind of thought about some of it, but I didn't relive the, the joyful memories that I thought I would. Anyway, why is it not wise to, to talk about the good old days? Covetousness. Covetousness. Well, covetousness, what do you mean by that? Well, when you long for something that you don't have, it's, it's coveting. Okay. Like, oh, when I was young, I did this. So. Rather than what Jesus, where Jesus has you now, where God has you now. Yeah, it denies the presence of God today, doesn't it? And it denies His sovereignty and putting us in our time. We are, we are right in history where we're supposed to be. So, uh, Mark, were you good? Somebody good to say? No, not, not productive and thankless. Okay. Yeah, not productive or thankless. And sometimes it's not even true. I heard one guy say, anybody that talks about, when we talk about the good old days, it may be that we have a vivid imagination and a short memory. Yeah. <laughs> but, I was uh, just thinking over the news uh, just yesterday, and thinking, boy, you know, wasn't it so much better 20, 30 years ago, less troubling things going on in the world, and I thought, well, that's kind of silly because everything that's happening now got started back then. It wasn't really better, it was just hadn't come out yet. Okay. Yeah. And it, well, I, I don't, it doesn't mean that it doesn't matter what happened in the past, but it's somewhat irrelevant to where we are, where we are today. Um, so when we talk about the good old days, we deny God's good plan for us in the present and His sovereignty. Our times are in His hands. See, uh, Gibson quotes C.S. Lewis, and I can't—I don't know if I can get it all right, but he, he says what C.S. Lewis says is is a reminiscence of the good old days is 
really a memory of the longings that we had at that time. And, and so what we're really remembering is the longings that we had and we, in our memory we have some way of thinking that those longings were fulfilled because they're, they're probably uh, good memories. He says, uh, you know, like a, a house or a song or a vacation, you hear those things and they bring back uh, mod, fond memories of the past. He said, what is really happening is, uh, what is, he says, what is really pulling on your heartstrings is not the past but the future. And he actually quotes that Ecclesiastes passage, God has put eternity in our hearts. Saying, so what, you know, um, Lewis is real big about if you're longing for something that you don't have, it's probably because you were made for that thing and it's, it's not going to happen to you in this life. But he says, so uh, what we're really, what's really pulling on your heartstrings is the future. Uh, that's heaven, your sense of home. Um, so again, with, with Gibson, he says, so uh, in this case, let the look to the back, to, let the look to the, to the past make you look to the future. Okay, well, let's keep, uh, keep going here. Let's see, we're not going to finish this chapter, but that's okay. Um, now, verses 11 and 12 just say, uh, interestingly, that he, he, he puts wisdom and money together. Well, let's, let's read the verses 11 and 12. Wisdom is good with an inheritance and advantage to those who see the sun. For the protection of wisdom is like the protection of money. So, is that good or bad? We'll, we'll look at that in a minute. And the advantage of knowledge is that wisdom preserves the life of him who has it. So, verse 11 says, wisdom is good, but if you have some money with it, it makes wisdom even better. Kind of what he's saying there, I think. And it's an advantage to those who have, who have both. But look at verse 12. For the protection of wisdom is like the protection of money. Um, Joshua, what does your King James say there? The, uh, the verse, verse 12. For wisdom is a defense as money is a defense. Okay. That's an interesting word. The, the actual word is the word for shadow. Shadow. And if you think about how the word shadow is used in the Bible, it can be used very positively or negatively like... You know, the psalmist it says, we rest under the shadow of your wings. It's a place of protection. But a shadow, uh, Job said, our lives are like a shadow. They're, 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 there's nothing to it. And so you have to use the context, I think, of, of what the, which way the word, the word goes. I, uh, I think that, that Solomon is making a statement that be careful Wisdom is like money. It's just, it, it can be just an appearance of something elusive that's not really going to protect you or provide for you. It's strange he would say that because he's been so big on wisdom and he's really helping us to see something very important and that even wisdom has its uh, limitations. <coughs> well, and then, and, and mainly because you look at this, this stark statement that he makes in verse 13. Consider the work of God, who can make straight what he has made crooked. So boy, he just hits us in the face with that, you know, or in the back of the head or, or whatever. Uh, no amount of money and no amount of wisdom can 
can manipulate God into straightening out things that he's made crooked, we're not going to affect the sovereign providence of God, the sovereign rule of God over the universe with money or with, um, or with wisdom. Let's see. Uh, yeah, I thought this quote was good from, from Provan. Uh, my note at verse 7, verse 13. The universe is not a predictable machine, but a personally governed and complex space. Wisdom is not magic. The world belongs to God and not to man. So again, just to help us to live with the reality of these things, we much of life is an enigma. It's not explainable. We don't we can't understand it. And boy does Job give us a whole book of that, you know, that kind of thing. And then um, notice verse 13, the last part, what he has made crooked. So sometimes God makes things crooked, but then in verse 14, he talks about something else that he can make. Uh, he makes not only the big picture of the universe, but even our days. In verse 14, in the day of prosperity, be joyful. And in the day of adversity, consider God has made the one as well as the other, so that man may not find out anything that will be after him, I think anything after, his, after he dies. So remember what Job, so notice God brings adversity and God brings pleasure and, and peace. What did Job say when he got when he got the news of the disaster of his children dying and his, all that happened to him? Yeah, what did he say? The Lord gives, the Lord takes away. The Lord gives, the Lord takes away. And then later on his wife said, why don't you just curse God and die? And what did he say to her? Shouldn't I accept both the adversity as well as the good? Yeah. Shall we receive good from God and shall we not receive? Or shall we receive evil? And in all of this, Job did not sin with his lips. So I've really grown to appreciate Job and Solomon. They are kindred spirits in this, you know, struggling with the reality of God's sovereignty in their, in their lives. So we'll get there, I think, next uh, in January. Okay, verse 15 is... I don't always know where he's going with this stuff, and neither do the commentators either. So I guess that's okay. And some of this circuitous thinking is just part of the message of the book. You know, it doesn't always make make sense. Um, so verse uh, verse 15: In my vain life, I have seen everything. There's a righteous man who perishes in his righteousness, and there's a wicked man who prolongs his life in his evil doing. And so he is. Um, you see my note there the preacher observes an apparent contradiction to the character consequence of conventional wisdom the book of Proverbs would say um, a righteous man will have a good life and an evil man will not and he's just saying sometimes that doesn't I don't see that happening but I want to uh, uh, look at verses 16 through 18 and I'll read those read those to us be not overly righteous, and do not make yourself too wise. Why should you destroy yourself? Be not overly wicked, neither be a fool. Why should you die before your time? Let's stop there. So he's, he's setting up two perspectives, and um, I'd like, let's read verse 17 first, because that seems the most obvious. Verse 17, don't be overly wicked, neither be a fool. 
Why should you die before your time? That's obvious, isn't it? I mean, don't be a fool. Don't be wicked. It can cut your life short. So we don't have a problem with that. But verse 16, be not overly righteous and do not make yourself too wise. Why should you destroy yourself? Well, what do you do with that? I mean, the whole book of Proverbs, it says wisdom is crying out to you to come to her and, and be wise. And, and uh, it kind of seems like Solomon said, don't do too much of that. That can cause you a problem. So what, is, what do you think he's saying here? Micah? My first impression is seeking after knowledge for knowledge's sake and just becoming puffed up. And, uh, yeah. Okay, I think so, Stephen. Even just being obsessive about any given topic where it's like, I have to know everything and I have to be smart about this thing. Okay. So research and devoting your life to something Good. So just being obsessed with learning and knowing. Uh, uh, being like the Pharisees versus Jesus, you know, following every letter rather than following the meaning of the letter. Okay. So legalism yeah. kind of thing. Right. Uh, John? Being righteous in your own eyes and making yourself, thinking in your own self. Okay. Worldly wisdom. Yeah. Righteousness in your own eyes. Uh, I've seen in the commentaries uh, this idea of autonomous wisdom. You know, wisdom that comes out of ourselves. And I think what we see in the book of Ecclesiastes, we see the two definitions of wisdom. We see sometimes Solomon talks about the wisdom that is founded in the, in the fear of God. Uh, the beginning of wisdom is the fear of the Lord. But then we also see this, this worldly wisdom, this, this idea of... Uh, Wisdom, just our, our we we call it wisdom because it it's our way of looking at the life at life. In a few minutes, he's going to call them. These are schemes. These are these are inventions of our own of our own uh, our own thinking. So I think you're on target there. I think about Romans 1:22. Remember that whole passage about the God gave them over. You know, remember what 1:22 says. Claiming themselves to be wise, they became fools. Um, well, that ought to get our attention, shouldn't it? That when we think we've got something figured out, we better be really careful. Now, of course, we have the Word of God as our objective understanding for that. Um, so which one's the most dangerous, you think, to uh, foolishness or this autonomous wisdom? <coughs> The second one, isn't it? Because the first one, you can see that pretty clearly, but the second one is this autonomous wisdom from our from ourselves. Uh, so look at his look at his guidance in verse 18. It is good that you should take hold of this, and from that withhold not your hand, for the one who fears God will come out from both of them. I think he's just saying. Uh, if you have true wisdom, if you're fearing God, uh, you'll, you will run from both of these, from both of these, uh, these fallacies. Okay, well, we can do a little bit of uh, hope. Yeah, let's see. Uh, um, do you have in your, with your notes, this uh, page called the Noet 14 Noetic Effects of the Fallen? Sum up 
picked up from Alan Moeller, I think other people have done this. Let's see, noetic has the idea of thinking. The, the effect of the fall on the way we think is what uh, he's doing here. I won't read all of them, but as I, as I read over these uh, yesterday, I think it was last night, um, it, re it got me thinking about the limitations of wisdom, particularly not the limitations of wisdom that comes out of God's Word, but the limitations of the way we think about things and we think we're thinking wisely. Boy, we better be careful because these noetic effects of the fall uh, are, are true about us even when we don't realize that they're true about us. You know, like the guy said, it's not what I don't know that gets me in trouble, it's what I don't know that I don't know. And these things can be true about all of us in the way we think. And they're caused by, um, by, our, uh, by the fall. So, I don't guess we'll take any time to look at some of those, but it's it very humbling to read these things and it makes us cautious and it helps us to see what Solomon is saying. There are huge limitations to wisdom. So be careful uh, putting all your hope there, particularly in this man-made autonomous uh, wisdom. Let's see. Uh, so then, he, for some reason, in verse 19, he gives a real clear uh, proverbial type definition of wisdom. Wisdom gives strength to the wise man more than ten rulers who are in the city. That could be right out of the book of Proverbs. I didn't go look uh, look at it. Let's see. Oh, I, you know, I should have waited till, um, till verse 20 to bring out the noetic effects. Surely there is not a righteous man on earth who does not, who does good and never sins. So that's the, the impact of, of the fall and sin on our, on our way of thinking about things. Uh, let's see. Maybe we'll stop there and we'll pick up there next, uh, next week and maybe we can do chapter 8. Chapter 8 must be real easy because David Gibson skips it. <laughs>